Now, if you turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 5, you'll realise the size of the task in front of me this morning. Uh, again, a good lesson. In one of those chapters, which if you weren't preaching through Timothy consecutively, you wouldn't touch with a barge pole. Um, some ministers like preaching on double honour. Um, I'm not too keen, unless it's for someone else. And uh, the actual significance of the widow's list in a day of the welfare state is also not quite um, as obvious as it might be. Nevertheless, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Can I read from 1 Timothy 4, 15, just to tie it in with what went before? Because when Paul wrote it, of course, there were no chapters and there were no verses. It just flowed one theme from another. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. That's his gift and call and his ministry. So that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. <coughs> Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Save there means rest. It's not only salvation for heaven, it has the, concept, the idea of deliverance in it and, and rescue and being preserved. It's broader than just the association that we may have with simply saying. Chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man harshly. Means don't strike him, actually. <laughs> but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper attention, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for a good deed such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saint, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry, thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, they, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them. 
so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favouritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Lord, speak to us through your word. Help us not simply to be observers of it, or experts in it, but doers of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, so far we've seen some great themes. The Gospel and its centrality. How we must be Gospel people first and foremost. The Church and its importance in the purposes of God. How that what God is doing today is doing through the likes of you and I and that's the way he works and therefore it puts all the more significance on how well we we live and serve him, not only as elders, but whatever our role is. It was elders in chapter 3 that he was dealing with. And then in the previous chapter, last time, we were looking at Timothy and his role in relation to truth and how he should conduct his life and how that godliness was very profitable and that it was better to be godly than, than, to, prof than to succeed in this world's, by this world's standards. So, great themes, developing into practical rules for living. The, the, the great truths that, come, that override everything are being worked down into the nitty-gritty of how actually we should be beginning to work it out in practice. And the rest of the letter, really, um, is of that character. And there's, not, there's, no clear, there's no clear separation from the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Um, that it's a series developing from what he said previously. It, it does look a bit like a jumble, um, once again, but uh, it can't be. He says in the middle, drawing attention to the seriousness of what he's saying, in verse 21, this, I, I give you this charge before Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Now, you might ponder a while as to what that's all about, but he's saying that all heaven is involved in this. This is serious stuff. How we look, and how we look after the widows, the angels are concerned. And if I can just lay the principle before I start, the nitty-gritty that we've already been reminded of is God's business. And there is no distinction in the scripture there's no separation between the spiritual and the practical. The spiritual is very practical. 
And the practical is filled with the purposes of God. Now, that's why these kind of details can flow from the great themes that is already introduced. I say that in passing. But at the end of chapter 4, Paul is giving his advice to Timothy. He's been given a, a ministry gift, as we saw at the end of the chapter, and Paul is then exhorting him, encouraging him, guiding him, how he should actually go on and, and go about it. And so, having talked about getting his own life in order, and he had to do that first, watch yourself and your doctrine carefully. Now, when you know that you are in a fit state to help others without being a hypocrite, well then, then minister, not only to people of your own age, but the older men, watch how you do it. Don't, don't strike them, don't, don't assault them. And, you know, you, those people that smother you, well then, treat them as mothers. The, the matriarchs among us. And Paul is here giving key principles where ministry is concerned. And uh, I don't often quote Neil Kinnett, but I'm going to quote him two weeks running. <laughs> we are an issue and also one. And uh, last week it was don't be a dreamer, be a visionary or something, wasn't it? But you know, if the church does not translate principles into practice, we will be a monument, not a movement. We will, you know. He must be reading Timothy in his quiet time. Right? <laughs> but it's true. The principles, alright, that we may be in a welfare state, and the actual arrangements here for looking after destitute, may not, there are not many around, are there? There are not many of us about. That in some ways the practical arrangements and all the, the dangers of women just um, taking from the church when they should take, I, I don't think there's anybody that I'm aware of within the fellowship that comes anywhere near that category. And therefore you might say, oh, well, we won't bother about chapter 5, it doesn't apply. Yes, it does. Because the principles and the reasons that Paul wrote it apply in our circumstances and we've got to transfer it. Otherwise, we're just fossilized. So let's look at them together. These pressing issues. It's obvious, writing to Timothy in Ephesus, that there were problems. Um, in chapter, in, in verse 8, beg your pardon, in verse 8, um, talking about those who don't pro provide for their family. Very strong words. He's worse than an unbeliever. That's not very pleasant. There are obviously those in the fellowship who are just not fulfilling their responsibilities. And he's very straight to them. And you've also got these younger women who are feeling that the church ought to be a welfare state while they gad about and gossip and all the other sorts of things. No, there's, I'm not aware that there's anybody in that category. Um, but it was a problem here. And he also goes on about these poor elders, um, particularly those who laboured in the word and in doctrine and earned their bread by it, who were on the poverty line. And he's addressing these kind of issues, which again is not, doesn't apply here but the principles do. So let's take the first half, this whole business about the widows. Who should we help? That's the question. Now, it's not only in relief for the destitute, but in counselling ministry, in encouragement ministry, in, the, in whoever you are helping, in whatever way you're helping, what is the principle that is applying here? 
Well, it's this. Let's look at it first in terms of the widows. There was no welfare state. If you're hungry and nobody helped you, you starve. If you'd had a breadwinner, and that breadwinner, because of war or disease or the fact that men get worn out first or whatever it might be, um, there was nothing, unless you had savings of your own, that you could draw on. And then Acts chapter 6, very, very early on in the, in the early church, there was this problem about the Greek widows or the Jewish widows. <coughs> And some were saying they were getting more relief out of the church funds than the others were. And they were squabbling. And who's going to sort it out? And Peter says, okay, appoint seven men full of the Holy Spirit. Let them serve in that deacon capacity. We are elders. We'll give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. One of the first administrative problems that hit the early church was the distribution of, of, of care for the poor and the, and the destitute. If I can just in order to help you, help you understand what is here. There seem to be three categories, not two. The first category are those that are the genuine poor, irrespective of age, verses 3 to 8. And Paul, Paul here says that if they've got families, well then the family must be responsible. The, the church is not the first port of call, it's the last port of call. It's, as he puts it there, so that those who are most needy might get the help that they need. He then, in, in, from verse 9 through to verse 11 or thereabouts, talk, verse 10, talks about the listed widows. Now, the, the fact that he specifies that these widows should be, have a, a proven track record and should be over 60 must put them in a different category from the previous verses. Or else otherwise, it's all right if you're destitute as long as you're 60 and you kept your nose clean. If you had a lousy husband who fell out with him, or if you're 59, starve. Now, I really don't believe that that is what Paul is saying. He's actually drawing out a category of matriarchs, a, a, a number of women who would not only be supported by the church, but would have a key role within the church. Those with the benefit of experience, who within the life of the church would be the family advisors. Who would advise on family planning, and family roles, and raising children. Now unfortunately in our day, we go to secular institutions way, way away. In the early church, they cared for each other. And women who had obviously done it, were the people who advised the younger women on how to do it. In terms of the people who brought their kids up. And they're all loving the law. I, I don't know about you. But I've got friends whose, whose family all love the law. One man in particular. And I often comment. He's got, I think David Gardner's got six children. And they're all but one who's a bit rebellious. But has a, a deep... Well he has, it's, he does it his own way. But it's obvious in the way that he's done it, he's done it right. And I've got a lot to learn from that man. Tell me, how did you bring your sons up that they can still do motocross and love the Lord? <laughs> yes? Now, the church recognised... Now, you see, again here, um, if I can just go back to the role of women. Yes, there were elders. Yes, there were these powerful 
paragons of spiritual excellence or whatever. Yes, they were. But elders on their own cannot help, are not qualified to help, and guide women in a lot of areas of life where there are practical things they know nothing about. Amen? And therefore there were women of mature, proven experience who were listed. A lot of them were supported in the same way that the the elders with ministry were as we come at the end of the chapter. I, I mention that in passing. You have Anna. Remember Anna in the temple in Luke chapter 2? A woman who gave herself to prayer and a ministry. And it was that kind of Anna figure that uh, was in the church. And as a fellowship, we don't believe in those of mature years being on a kind of a, an ash heap of retirement. We will be greatly impoverished if we cannot learn from those that have already been there. Now, that runs against our culture a little bit. The yuppie mentality, that it's the, the great successors who are in the midst of it, are the people to consult, it goes against what the scripture says. You don't always do what the old fogies say. But generally speaking, they have a knack of being right. And when you're young, it isn't irksome, isn't it? You know, though I can remember as a boy, times longing for my dad to be wrong. Did <laughs> you? Yeah. It never was. Rats. Now, those widows who were genuinely in need were means tested and the principle really was if, you, if people can help themselves they must be helped to help themselves if people can't help themselves we must help them now that was the principle that applied to widows we must not over protect we must not over-persuade. Have you ever seen a Christi Christian parents trying to force their children into the kingdom? Have you? And Johnny loves the choruses, don't you, Johnny? And every little bit, almost, conversion by pressure. It never, ever, ever works. Never. And to create an expect an unreal expectation, oh, he loves the Lord, really. You know, he can't stand anything to do with it. That artificial pressure, where if only we could, we would try and do it for them. Yes? And sometimes, oh, of course, I can't make anybody a Christian, but I'll have a really good try. And your non-Christian husband, poor, poor fella, you know, that, oh no, it'll be the Lord, but I'll give the Lord a really good hand. And then just in case the Lord isn't doing it, well, I'll do it in interim. Yeah? Now, unfortunately, in helping people, we can, out of concern, want to do more than we should do. Now, a number of times recently, I've quoted a, 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 the old elder of mine in Wales, and he had a few pithy sayings. And one of them was, if they're too tired to walk, they're too heavy to carry. It might sound a bit hard. But if somebody is not prepared to help themselves, 
You're actually not helping them by doing it for them. Whether they're a widow with financial needs or somebody who's low in spirit, it's crucial that we help people to help themselves. Now, if somebody has gone beyond that financially or emotionally, or we have a responsibility to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. And there's a difficult balance. You see, Paul, in writing to the Galatians in chapter 6, says that we must bear one another's burdens. And then within about four verses, he says, every man must carry his own load. See? And that's the balance. And actually in helping people, in this case with widows, in practical need, if there's a family where really they have the resources to help themselves, we're not helping people by doing it for them. See that? And in helping new Christians to pray with them or for them, it's not going to help. We've got to help them to pray. To be always spoon-feeding truth into someone actually, ultimately, won't help. That person's got to learn to dig in the quarry for themselves. And so it goes on. And in very, very practical areas, bereavement. Take helping someone with bereavement. Does it help somebody in that kind of devastation to have somebody do everything for them? Actually, that is the worst possible thing that you can do for somebody in serious loss. What must we do? We must encourage them to get back into the normal roles of life and do what they can do and feel the self-respect and the confidence and the hope that them actually being able to do something will give them. When they've done that much, and they can do much of it, then the hand of support is there in order to protect and, and lift them up. And uh, th th there, are, there are a whole host of areas. Recovery from illness. What do the hospitals do as soon as they've stitched you up? Stand you on your feet. Don't they? Oh, I can't nurse, get up. Oh, I can't. Not for five weeks. Get up. Isn't that right? Now, why? Because in any healing process, the participation of the, of the invalid to do what they can do is part of God's order. There, if you do collapse halfway down the corridor, well then, yes, that, that sweetness will pick you up. Put you in bed, give you five minutes, and then say, Get up! <laughs> The same is true with people suffering from depressive condition or unemployment. I remember one situation very, very well um, where, where a couple couldn't handle their money. New Christians, rough folk, and not, not Easter at all. He used to play prop, had broken nose and there's a brickie on the council, and Steve, Steve was a, a rough and ready kind of chap. But money, hand, the, handling money, was something that they'd never ever done. And in the course of helping them to become Christians and doing guideposts with them, the couple that were helping them realised this, and thought, you know, great need, and actually started to hand the, the, the brown notes from their hands to the needy hands. 
So there is a need. We can't have money in our wallet and not let not let them have it. We we must give. There's a need. We must give. This is the worst possible thing that ever happened. It made the people feel patronised. It it actually made that meant that they could have more money to learn how that 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 they could spend without any kind of restraint. The family, the, the, when he came home from work at night, he used to put his, his envelope behind the clock. And when anybody wanted any money, and it was if it was Monday, it was probably still okay. They would simply go and get the money from behind the clock. <coughs> Wednesday, you got a problem, because there's no more money behind the clock. Then he said to her, where's it gone? What have you spent my money on? She said, I was thinking, I know, you take it from behind the clock. And every week that went on. Now what actually was needed was that they needed to be helped to help themselves. To actually give them money was, 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 the, was the thing that was not going to help them at all. And uh, I think Paul here does actually bring out with the younger women why we should not help people who are not helping themselves. That it can produce a dependence. Notice in verse 13 that laziness is something we learn. That people can learn to be lazy if their responsibilities are not practically necessary for them to take on. The, the mission, missionary movement for a hundred years is at the problem of rice Christians. That's what they call them in the South in China. Rice Christians. Because these wealthy Christians, with all of their resources, if you went to the, to the compound and became a Christian and went to the church, they gave you a suit and a Bible and a hat and rice. So what happened? Well, people came to be, became Christians for completely the wrong reasons and their hearts weren't changed at all. And there's the same danger that we can take people on in the wrong way. And it, it can produce a, almost a rights mentality. When British Steel were on strike in Port Talbot, as a church, we had several people on strike. Now, they weren't militant leftists. That They were people who, for their health's sake, did not dare go through the pickets. And as the strike went on, I think for about five or six weeks, maybe even more, there, there was real need. And some of those families, there, there was no strike pay, of course, and there was no, there was no social security, and there was, they, they were becoming poor, the mortgage wasn't paid, and whatever. So as a fellowship, we felt that we, who have much, must minister to those who are on strike. That might go against some people's political um, reasoning to support those who are, who, are, who are striking, but that's what we felt that we had to do, because they were needy and the children were hungry. We then had the minor strike. <laughs> Every two years you get one. And the people were going around the village asking for money to support the men and to get the government down and all the other sorts of things, and I had someone come to me and say, where's my money? You help them? Help me! Uh, it's a very difficult area. And throwing money at a problem actually doesn't solve it at all. It can make it immense, a, a good deal worse. Now let me say again that where there is a case of genuine need, Paul says, help them. Where there's somebody who cannot help themselves, we help ourselves. We have a duty. We are like unbelievers if we don't practically help and give and Support that person who, who otherwise would be destitute, and it's crucial that we recognise that. 
But we don't help by doing what the troubled person could do for themselves. And we don't help their emotional well-being. And in your, in whoever you're helping, in what, at whatever level, whether spiritually or emotionally or even practically, learn the lesson of Paul's teaching here. <coughs> we are helping best when we help people to help themselves. Got it? That's the first principle. Who should we help? The second one deals with who should we honour? Double honour. Well, okay, I'll meet it straight on. I'm, go I'm going to run the risk of the, of, 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 uh, of the jibes and the taunts. I know what the conversation's going to be about down on West End Green, but that, I'll run the risk of that. Or down by the river. Uh, and, and being misinterpreted, I, I'm not asking for a rise. Um, I'm not poorly paid. So let's get that out of the way first of all. But let me, having said that, let's not miss the lesson and the principle that's here in Scripture for us to see. That uh, practical matters are essential to spirituality. Now, what Paul is talking here is not twice as many pats on the back. He's talking about money. Oh, how advanced. I'm sorry, but he's talking about money. Now, how you interpret it, or how Liz Perkins interprets it, or whoever else decides what money passes through her hands, um, that's, that's for them, not for me. But the, the, the next verse quite clearly ties it down to what it's talking about. Talking about, in a practical sense, that the ministry is to be well supported. Um, quoting Deuteronomy 25.4, that they let, don't muzzle the ox when it's treading the corn. And again, in the context of supporting those that, that, that live by the gospel, in 1 Corinthians 9, um, Paul again quotes exactly the same verse to talk about a well-supported ministry. He then, if, in 1 Corinthians 9, you might like to turn to it, just so I can um, show that I'm not just banging my own drum. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk, do I say this merely from a human point of view? Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 9. Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the ground. <coughs> is, it, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, that this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Going down to verse 14. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So, there's a, a biblical command. Not that this church ducks it, but the, it's there clear enough. And Luke chapter 10 and verse 7 is again what Paul is quoting the words of Jesus here. And saying that the right support and the right honour must be given. There's a sense of abundance in it, a sense of being ample. It's dependent on efficiency, mind you. It's kind of product, productivity related. How you do that with those that rule well, I'll let somebody else work out. But I, I did once have a friend who pastored a church in Derbyshire and um, Matlock. And uh, the church treasurer came up to him one day and said, we bought you a bike so that you can get around the people and of course we've uh, reduced your salary from so much 
to compensate for the extra service that the vine will give you. I'm sure the Lord is grieved by that. I'm sure it reflects badly on the one who gave the gift. On one, another occasion, early on in ministry, when we were on maximum family income supplement, which is said quite a lot, and uh, it got out in a church members meeting what the minister was being paid, and this lady whose husband did a, a cleaning job realised that that man up there, who only works on Sundays anyway, was um, getting paid more than her husband, who works five days a week, and actually made her protest vocal in the village community where we lived, and betrayed a complete misunderstanding about how valuable the ministry is. Now, again, it's not just money. Here it is, that's what Paul is talking about here, but the principle goes beyond that. It's actually, you know, there have been times in the past when, well, this is, there's your salary, David. Is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. Don't look to you anyway, look to the Lord. But it doesn't say very much about how much you think I'm worth, does it? Yeah? We all feel that. But it's worse than that. It doesn't say very much for how much value they put on what gift the, God, the Lord has given, does it? It seems to almost reflect badly on the Lord if we treat leaders with disrespect. Because in his best wisdom, it was those leaders that the Lord seemed to have given us. And it's in that kind of area, if I can get away from that red, that hot potato now. It's in that area that I feel the principle is running in these later verses. Why honour with double honour? Because high standards are crucial in leadership. Now look at that list again. Go back into 1 Timothy 5 and look at that list again from verse 17. You see, verse 17 is the one that always pops out. Ah, oh, double honour, double honour. Let the minister be paid twice as much as the highest paid member in the church. I heard that once. Only once. Uh, that by English standards, not by American standards, of course, I'm not paid well, but by English standards I am. But uh, you will hear that kind of argument from time to time. It actually is there, if you, if you were to read the notes on the New Testament by John Wesley, he actually argues that way. And, but he says this, if you've chosen your leaders well enough, they will know what to do with the extra that they have over their knees. And he actually lived that way. I, I forget the tens of thousands of pounds or, that he earned over his life, but it was a, for his day it was a phenomenal amount. But every year, from the year he started itinerant preaching to the year they buried him, he lived on exactly, I think it was 80 pounds. And he lived on that figure exactly for every year. And though his income went up, his expenditure remained exactly, more or less to the pound, exactly the same. And there we are. Margaret Thatcher quoted him to the Scottish Kirk and, and said that Wesley's teaching was earn what you can. Save what you can and give what you can. And he actually did it. He, he, he earned what he could, received all the money from his, from his writings and, his, and the hymn books and his, his printing, printing empire, lived on exactly the same level and died a pauper. That adds a lot of credibility to that man, doesn't it? Now, you see, he argued 
Yes, if you've got the right man, don't lay hands on suddenly on anyone. Make sure he's not a lover of money. But if you've got the right man, you can make him a millionaire and he'll still give it away. Now whether that was what Paul was meaning by double honour, I don't know, you can think about that. But look at the verses that we have here to see what he's saying in terms of high standards in leadership. He begins um, in verse 18 almost by saying, if God's gifts are good, be seen to reward them well and put a high value on them. Value those, especially those that preach and teach, value them highly. That's what he's saying first. Secondly, in order to have high leadership, verse 19 and 20, discipline them thoroughly. And if they are proven to be wrong, discipline them publicly. <coughs> because we must have high standards. No humbug in those that claim to be gift men from God. And if their, if their handling of money or their moral life or anything else is questionable, well then, if they're, if they're elders with ministry, discipline them publicly. Because the standards of leadership must be kept high. Can you see how there's a, there's, a, there's a strand here, isn't there? He then goes on in verse 21, talking about the angels and about fairness. Why are the angels interested in fairness? Because authority that Jesus has delegated to these men in leadership, that authority must be wielded well. And it mustn't be wielded with partiality. That the, the, the authority that that man will exercise in Christ must be for the benefit of all, not just for the benefit of his friends. A high level of leadership is essential. Can you see the strand? He then goes on about being selective. Why? Why lay It doesn't mean lay hands to them. It doesn't mean, you know, don't mug people suddenly. Don't wait at the dark and pounce on them in the alley. It means don't set a, a man aside to ministry without due thought, checks, care, assessment, preparation, proving himself. Why? Because it, you'll let too many men through if you do that. And you lower the standard of leadership. We must have a high standard of leadership and be seen to preserve it. And if we set men aside to ministry and uh, that really they, they were not ready for it, we share in their failure. We are responsible for it. That's what he says. We must look after their health. Note. Not their levels of intoxication. Their health. <coughs> Why? Because we want a good level of leadership. You're always walking around looking sickly, Timothy. You're not a particular good advert of life in abundance. Get yourself some wine. Cheer yourself up. Give, make me the, give me the oil to make my face rejoice. What is it? Something like that. Give me the wine to make my face rejoice and the oil to make my face to shine. And then the, 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 into verse 24, the question of abuse. If their sins are evident, then you've got to handle it. Again, coming back to the whole question of discipline. Only the best will do. And it, it's that emphasis on excellence in the second half of the chapter means, and the teachers say it, don't they? If you want the best, well then, let it be seen that that's the value you put upon it. Only set aside those that are the best. And if the best is compromised, discipline it publicly. 
Make sure that he's on Vupa, or what the equivalent is, um, for today. In other words, look after your leaders. Look after your elders. Don't gossip and criticise a leader. Or if you do, find two others and do it publicly. One of the things that is particularly true, the states are better at this than we are. And I'm, talking, I'm not talking we here, I mean we nationally. That good ministry hasn't really been put into high value. I wouldn't say that it has. Uh, that people are much, much too quick to have roast preacher for Sunday lunch. Yeah? It's a national disgrace. And the church, alright, in the States there is this danger of making kind of heroes and and, and stars out of their preachers. Yeah, that, that, that we can go too far the other way into triple honour or whatever it is. It could, that, that there are dangers at both extremes. But how quickly we grow, don't we? And one of the things that I actually pick up from folks from, from, from New Zealand the same, how well they speak of those that labour among them. How quickly they honour their elders. And I, that I'm not speaking for myself now, I'm speaking for those that are in leadership here. Honour your leaders. And don't allow whinging to cross your lips. Now, there's a difference, isn't there, between comeback and criticism. A leader can't lead well without comeback. And if there's something that's bothering you, you owe it to him to say, David, can I share this with you? It's bothering me. That's comeback. And that's essential to effective leadership. But criticism, which is simply a knocking of the man or the woman, completely undermines not only his ability to minister there, but his confidence to do it. And if I can just, uh, just as a last scripture to turn to, turn with me to Hebrews 13. And just whoever your elder is, will you keep him in mind while you read this? I said I could bang the drum for someone else. Just keep your elder in mind. If you don't know who your elder is, see me after it. <laughs> Hebrews 13. <coughs> 17. Sorry. Obey leaders and submit to their authority. Then keep watch over you as men who must give an account good leadership. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. I met a lot of very unhappy men in ministry whose lives have been made sad and utterly dejected by those that thought they knew better and would not leave them alone. Have you ever come across people like that? People discouraged who were doing their best. So, you know, whether you kind of pat them on the back, go and ask them, go and ask them, the elders are going to be bloated after today, they're going to be eating everybody else's dinner. Honour your leaders. Hendrickson, I thought it was a, a tragic comment, said in his commentary on this that honour usually comes in the elders' funeral. So those are the, those are the principles, I think. Come back, not criticism. So let me conclude. Going back to where I started. 
the practical things actually reflect our spiritual health. Our willingness to show mercy to those who actually need it shows the degree to which we understand that we have been shown mercy. Remember the parable about the chap that had been forgiven all of his millions and then found the servant that owed him a bob or two in the alley. Where's my money? The degree and the willingness to which we minister to the poor or to the destitute among us is a reflection of how much we understand, how, how greatly in need we be. The practical and the spiritual are fused together. And your gratitude and honour of your elder or your leader or whatever is an honouring of the head. If you despise the gift, you're saying an awful lot about the giver. And the practical principles for Timothy, there he is, stir up the gift that's within you, that which was given through a prophetic word, this minute, look after yourself, watch yourself and watch your doctrine carefully. Now, Timothy, now that you're going to minister, these are two principles that you must bear in mind. You must help others to reach their full potential. Yes? That's the first thing. We must not help people and in our helping actually hinder them 